0: and welcome to Parley Podcast. I'm Art Prasad, Science Editor of the Hindu, and I have with me today, Dr. Gautam Menon, Professor of Physics and Biology at Ashoka University, and Dr. Giridhar Babu, Epidemiologist at the Public Health Commission of India. This week's discussion is about the measures that need to be taken to contain the second wave. A a surge in cases was first reported in a handful of states in the the third week of February. And from over 53,000 on March 30, the number of new cases reported daily has been increasing very sharply in many states. What do you think is the reason for this, uh, Dr. Babu?
1: At least in my mind, there are three important reasons. First reason is in terms of the host immunity. Either uh, a proportion, even if it is a small proportion of people who might not have uh, had the desired immune response from the first wave because of the waning antibodies, they might have got uh, again as reinfection. And also vaccination pace is slower. So therefore, the levels of protection in the population is lower. So host immunity isn't great. Second, in terms of environment, whatever we are doing is conducive for faster transmission, be it full of cinemas or marriages or political rallies. Finally, uh, I do believe that there might be circulation of uh, infectious uh, variants, uh, at least in some parts of the country, which are responsible for the search. Dr. Menon, uh
0: Do you want
2: to add? Yeah, I can add to that. I think Giri's third reason, which is the nature of the new variants that are now available and seem to be spreading, is really driving the increase in cases. We had a fairly long period between about the middle of September to really the end of January, where cases consistently went down. And that is roughly the period where I think measures that were taken to curb transmission, mask wearing was more or less In place. I mean, there were violations in various areas. If anything, cases grew in the background in more rural India. But I think as far as urban India is concerned, it had pretty much run its full sort of, its full course by January. So the only thing that can account for this very, very sudden increase is really the new variants. There are a whole bunch of new variants, the UK variant, the South Africa variant, the Brazil variant, all of which are present at various levels in India. But the most worrying one for me is this new B1.617 variant, which is a double mutant variant, which has been associated with increasing numbers of cases in Maharashtra and also again in various other states around the country. And this has been known since uh, February. There's a nice, very nice bit of reporting from Tabasum Bernagarwala of the Indian Express, in and I'm speaking about the situation in Amravati in February, where she pointed out that we were seeing positivity rates of 56% at that time. And I think this was not sufficiently realized that this could potentially grow and become far more significant. Apart from that, everything that Giri says about general lack of attention to public behavior in the context of COVID-19 infection, election campaigns have been responsible. And all of this does not look very good at the moment. Okay.
0: On April 11th, uh, India reported nearly uh, 1.7 lakh cases, the highest in the world. Uh, but the number of tests carried out in the country has also been increasing. So, uh, is it uh, the, the, the increased testing the reason why we, we are now seeing more number of cases
2: being reported? Is, there, is that a possibility, Dr. Menon? In my opinion, no. The number of daily tests that we're doing now, if you take a seven day average, it's about 12 lakhs. It's only about 1 to 2 lakhs more than what we were doing during the peak of the last wave. So testing has not changed that much now that we're getting roughly 60,000 extra cases per day compared to the previous peak. an extra 1 lakh testing here and there really isn't going to make much of a difference. The other thing is, if you look at test positivity, if you look at Maharashtra's test positivity, around 28%, probably in excess of 30% in Pune, we're certainly not testing enough anywhere because these are numbers that should be below the level of 5%, ideally across the country. But that is not true. These numbers are spiraling. So, we are certainly nowhere near the amount of testing we need to be doing. And increased testing is very, very unlikely to be the
1: reason for more cases being reported. Dr. Babu, would you like to add? I agree with Gautam. So, uh, definitely, uh, if there is anything, we need more number of tests rather than that being the reason for higher transmission. Uh, Especially the kind of tests that we do in some of the tests, that is also important. Overall, some states haven't tested well. That is the main problem. Within that, what kind of tests are they doing and when are they doing? That's also important. I think on both counts, uh, we are only uh, probably underperforming rather than what is expected. If
0: you, if both of you feel so, by how much do you think the number of tests per day uh, has to be increased uh, to bring down to hammer down the test positivity
1: rate? Dr. Uh, Babu? Yeah, so uh, on a, uh, I mean, just a rule of thumb, whenever you have uh, uh, the number of cases, uh, then you compare it with case-to-infection ratio. Uh, my best guess is somewhere between 1 is to 10 to 1 is to 20, uh, the case-to-infection ratio, which means that for every case reported, we are probably missing 10 infections. Uh, in an ideal world, you would want all those 10 infections to be uh, picked up. But it's very unlikely because most of them are asymptomatic. So, at least by five times is something desirable when the surge is going on, at least in the districts where the surge is going on. That would be a, a rough rule of thumb. But I wouldn't say that's, uh, that's what we should be approximating to a national level or a state level.
2: Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I would... Uh... I think currently, if you sort of look at it in percentage terms, you're probably testing about 0.7 to 0.8% of our population every day. We should at least be testing around five times that much. But here's, here's another point that I want to make and I want to stress that uh, even though the RAT tests are less sensitive and there are concerns about whether it's managing to pick up enough cases, w- the work that we have done suggests that the real issue is that you should be testing much more. And what test you use is probably secondary to that question. If you can test at the level of 3% of to 4% of the population every day, even with a not so good test, such as an RIT test, you are still guaranteed to sort of hold the epidemic back in check as much as possible. That's another question. Again, this relates to what Giri had said about what you test with and how you test is also as, as important as how, as, as, you know, the m- quantum of testing.
1: Yeah. Uh, I might just want to add that. I think uh, the rapid antigen test is not completely as bad as it is made out to be. Uh, In our data in Karnataka State Zero Survey, what we looked at was if there is a symptomatic person and if you do rapid antigen test, it's actually uh, really good in terms of sensitivity and the specificity. The problem is if you use the rapid antigen test in an asymptomatic person. So, based on the results, uh, the guidelines which were formed in the government of Karnataka was that if there is a symptomatic person, you can use rapid antigen test. But for all asymptomatic persons, RT-PCR is the test of choice. Okay. Uh,
0: Dr. Minan, when do you think uh, the second wave is likely to see a peak? And when we see such a peak, what do you think will be the number of daily cases recorded? Because even now we are recording 1.7 uh, lakh cases. So at the peak, what do you think will be the number? That is very hard to say,
2: mainly because there is information there that we don't really know. I mean, in order to be able to model this, you have to know what is the significance of reinfection, what is the level of immune escape that is happening. It's certainly clear that that these new variants, in particular the Maharashtra variant, is spreading much faster than the early. If you just look at models for the old numbers and the current numbers, the the reproductive ratio is significantly larger than the reproductive ratio in in the earlier cases. So far, there seems to be no sign of any point of inflection in the data, the All India data or even the statewide data. So my guess is that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. We may be seeing around, let's say, 2.5 lakhs per day of tests of, of of cases and um, right now we are at, at but,
0: but the rate at which it is increasing it's almost like 5, uh, 5 to 10000 cases new cases every day the way it is increasing so that be so uh, do you think it will go up only to 2.5 lakh
2: cases before it peaks as I said, it's very hard to say because normally one would have expected that the fact that several people had, you know, a large fraction of the population had already been infected in the previous wave. So the best estimates would be in urban regions somewhere between 50 and 60 percent. In rural India somewhere between let's say 30 to 40 percent, roughly speaking. So that should have held in place if these old, if being infected once had protected you against a new strain, then we would have expected the tapering off to happen much faster. The fact that we're seeing this very drastic increase suggests that maybe the reinfections are significant in this case, and that is worrying. There's really, I mean, these are just guesses at this point. Two and, two, two and a half lakhs to three lakhs would certainly be the peak, and somewhere between the next month is, would be the best guess at this point. But as I somewhere, said, this is all very approximate.
0: Somewhere in the next month, is uh, would it mean the beginning or
2: the mid uh, of next month or end of next month? Again, a guess, but I would I would sort of think to the end of this month, the first week of next month, but I must emphasize this is a guess. Okay. There have been very
0: few restrictions in the free movement of uh, people within, uh, say, within states or across states. Is, is, is this a, a possible way to bring down the virus spread? Is, uh, uh, should we be allowing this free
2: movement of people uh, within and between states Dr. Menon? In my opinion, we will probably have to curb interstate travel at this point. But the only, I mean, we can only make that decision if, when we know how much these new variants have spread. If, as I think, the new, the rise in cases everywhere is being driven by the new variants, if it has already spread sufficiently across, then whether you have, whether you further restrict interstate tra- travel would be, you know, may, 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 but may be pointless at this at this point. So we need data, that particular piece of data desperately. Apart from that, we need to know everything that we are currently doing. We need to worry about open, about uh, restricted, closed spaces. We need to worry about masking. We need to worry about you know, reducing the intensity of religious events, political events. Maybe forbid them altogether. But um, I think we will have to introduce restrictions on movement of people, both within and without, across states. Dr. Babu, would you
1: like to add to it? Yeah, I think it's a bit late already. Uh, (laughs) The the reason I say this is um, we were to do this uh, in the beginning. Uh, When I say in the beginning, uh, in first to second week of February, we saw the reproductive number going up. We knew where the localized outbreaks are. That was the time when we should have done concurrent genomic sequencing with epidemiological investigations. Even the results of the uh, genomic sequencing were made available uh, after uh, somewhere in mid-March. Uh, so March that... 24th or uh, something. Yeah. So yeah. that wouldn't be useful uh, in containing the transmission to a limited area. Now, why would uh, a interstate uh, transfer uh, be... Why would that be uh, useful? Uh, it will be useful because... Uh, when you know that there is a new variant of transmission somewhere from somewhere, you would want to limit that to a localized area. But currently, I uh, firmly believe that there are many variants in circulation, both indigenous and uh, the imported ones. And we simply don't know. And it's unfortunate. It's a pity that we are guessing. This variant might be there; that variant may be there. So let's restrict people from one state to another. So this panic is not justified by data. So uh, the easiest thing to do right now is to um, make strict, um, uh, you know, enforcement of containment measures. Uh, If you fail there, uh, especially in uh, reducing the overall transmission uh, trajectory in some of the places like uh, whichever being biggest hit now then we lose this opportunity also. So currently, I think it's a bit late for uh, restricting the interstate travel.
2: So let me just, make, let me just make data. one point, uh, Prasad, that I, I agree with that. But I also want to point out that uh, we should have had this data. We've had one report from on, uh, on on the 24th of March. But ideally, every week, there should have been an update. Then we would have known. How is it spreading? Where is it spreading? Where are the variants of concern? Are there multiple variants of concern in a particular geographic region? With that, as Giri points out, the earlier we would have had that information, the easier it would have been to act upon it. So I think that is important. Again, transparency is very important. We've emphasized it before. We can emphasize it again. That to make these decisions that are basically policy decisions, people need to know. Dr. Babuk uh... You seem to be
0: more uh, insistent that uh, the ATF surge is mainly driven by variants. Do we have the data? And as the government sort of confirmed this, they only said uh, these variants are present, but they have not been able to find a link between that and uh, the the virus spread, nor a link between the variant and disease severity. So that being the case... Are we just guessing right now that uh, the surge that we see right now is driven
1: mainly by new variants? Dr. Prasad, you'll have to believe somebody's guess uh, over the others. So now, in the absence of data, uh, the simplistic, uh, I mean, uh, Gautam would be the best person to talk about uh, parsimony models. The simple the model, the fewer the assumptions, the better is the sort of, uh, you know, inference in terms of uh, any applicability to the current uh, pandemic situation. Now, the moment you say COVID inappropriate behavior is the reason for surge in cases, then you'll have to explain why only few states. And then you say, no, maybe there are people, uh, the proportion of people who don't wear masks is higher. Then you have to explain why the political rallies have not resulted in huge surge in cases. So on and so forth. So you'll have to make multiple assumptions to explain any other reason being the main driver of the second wave. Whereas if you look at the variants of concern, uh, the assumption is very simple. Uh, Even though we don't have the data, ideally it should have been made available, but it's not there. How can you explain the surge in cases in the Dharavi slums or in any area where there was already... At least uh, on, uh, on paper, we had shown uh, from different research groups that they've reached the threshold for population immunity. What can explain uh, 25% positivity in some of these slums? It simply says that uh, two possible reasons. One, the newer variants are uh, in rampant circulation in some places. Two, a major proportion of the people who had infection in the first wave also have it in the second. That measure may not be true because the recent papers, uh, at least uh, looking at some evidence says one third of the people may have waning antibodies within uh, three months. But uh, we'll have to put all this evidence in context.
2: Yeah, I think let me just step in here. That's a really a wonderful answer. But I just wanted to point out an additional thing that on the on the biological and clinical side, we do have evidence that these variants are more transmissible. So if you have a population where you have the old variant and the new variants coexisting simultaneously, because a new variant just grows faster, is better, moves better between people, it will take over at some point. Where we need, what we need is the epidemiological information that basically is a sort of time series. Every week, what is the fraction in the population that you're testing? How is that increasing? Then that would really seal the argument. Right now, we don't have that information, so we have to make the best guesses that we can. And these are the guesses that we have at the moment.
0: Okay. Uh, Talking about the, uh, 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 the spread, yes, we see huge clusters, uh, be it in schools or colleges or in offices or in residential apartments, clusters of 10s, 20s of 30 people getting tested positive, which we didn't see earlier in the first wave. Does this uh, point out that the, possibly the new variant is uh, more infectious? And therefore, also, it, does it beat uh, or go against that uh, earlier uh, assumed uh, thing that 20% of people are responsible for 80% of infection? Does this uh, new variant or whatever that is driving the surge right now, is it uh, going against these two uh, things
2: that, that were assumed? That's a wonderful question. I wish we had the information to answer that. But that certainly the fact that you see much more sort of person-to-person transmission in families, in homes, in restricted groups, does suggest that maybe it's just more transmissible as well as it doesn't satisfy the eighty-twenty 20 rule that we don't have super spreaders anymore. Everybody is potentially a super spreader at some level. And that we don't know that yet. That's very important to establish. And in principle, by doing contact tracing, we can find that information.
1: Uh, Dr. Babu? Yeah, if I can add. Yeah. So there, there are two other aspects to this. Earlier, um, after post-lockdown and all the other kind of measures, we rarely tested in kind of uh, settings where many people stay in the same place. But now we have the opportunity to test apartments, uh, schools and colleges, workplaces. In fact, we are testing more in clusters than we used to do earlier. So that uh, is definitely a factor here. But the same kind of cluster investigation outbreak uh, is not happening uh, in the rural areas. So I think there is also a skewed uh, testing, uh, which is uh, required here, uh, which is the, probably the, uh, one of the factors. In addition to that, uh, since the highest proportion is of asymptomatic in the, among those we are testing, uh, probably this was similar earlier also, but we have not just done similar testing earlier.
0: If, if uh, it's a new variant that is possibly responsible for this surge, why do we see it uh, more in certain states? And why is it that we don't see this surge in every state? Uh, is it because uh, the variants have not spread or is it
2: something else? We are not doing enough genomic surveillance to tell. That would be the basic answer that even now between how, how much has Maharashtra changed between March 24th and today, we don't know. We know that this that the variant in Maharashtra has spread to at least, I think, probably at least 10 states or so. But how those numbers have changed and how much of the spike in cases responsible to that variant, we don't know. So all of this is information that we need. We just don't know at this point. Are we grouping in the dark?
1: Uh, probably... Uh, I mean, uh, that may not be the correct description. I would, <laughs> I w- I would rather say uh, in the places where you try to find more, you will get some evidence. Where you do not uh, search enough, uh, you don't get that kind of evidence. And where it is completely absent, either the lab is absent or efforts are also absent, then your uh, uh, probably um, uh, your description is right that there it's complete darkness. So there are areas of complete darkness there, some light and where somewhere it's very illuminating. So uh, we, we are a heterogeneous country.
2: Yeah, that's a, oh, that's a very Babu, important what... point to make, that when you look at the All India number, that masks a lot of complexity at the level of the states and the districts, precisely for the reasons that Giri is pointing out.
0: Dr. Babu, uh, what do you think is the reason for the states which went to polls, including the one uh, West Bengal which is till uh, uh, going, uh, rallies uh, are happening, that we don't see this kind of a surge which should have probably been much higher than even Maharashtra. Why, Why is it so? Is it uh, the lack of testing or is it because variants are not there or is it uh, data manipulation or I don't know. What, what do you think is the reason?
1: You gave me multiple choices there. So, uh, one thing, uh, one of the choices which you did not include, Dr. Prasad, was, is there a miracle in some states that uh, there is no high circulation? Uh, For that, the answer is clearly no. Uh, Every state is at risk of, uh, if there is a newer variant in circulation, every state is at uh, risk. Some are at higher risk than the others, depending on when the variant enters the state. But um, as you uh, gave the first option, uh, inefficient testing, uh, especially inefficient syndromic uh, approach, um, um, because your entire machinery is involved uh, probably in something as monmouth as an election campaign. So before the review and monitoring of uh, a COVID-19 response uh, getting uh, as a second priority over the elections, these, these are definitely the reasons why we might have missed it. But we can't miss for longer, not at least with this uh, second wave. Uh, the, the moment you miss for a week, you already know that uh, the cases are uh, crossing the earlier peak. So, I think uh, uh, this wave cannot be missed in any state. Uh, I mean, uh, Gautam can correct me.
2: I think that's right. But let me just make a slightly nuanced point here. And that is, in general, an outdoor activity carries much less risk than an indoor activity. And this, I think, is something that might account for the fact that even in election campaigns, you're not seeing the sort of large numbers of people who are accompanying that. So this is something that has not been, this point has been made at various po- at various places, but that may be something that is significant. In general, what you do outside in, in, open, in open air carries much less risk than being in an enclosed space.
0: Uh, Dr. Menon, uh, yes, uh, uh, outdoors, the risk is less. But then uh, people are, are packed like sardines. So for, for that being the case, uh, there's there's hardly any distance between two people uh, in a, in those rallies or in the, the uh, religious congregation that are being held across the country. That being the case, and, and uh, add to it, people aren't wearing masks so these uh, conditions are they not conducive
2: for the virus to spread even though it is held out outdoors from a modeling point of view the answer isn't very clear whether if you have enough people you know, tightly put together what is the density of people at which transmission between people become important what they're doing are they shouting or not shouting is also important because that seems to be because that certainly is a way in which you can you have you can have a super spreader event where people pass it on to other people so i'm just making a general qualitative point not a quantitative point it may depend upon the nature of the rally how many people were there were there super spreaders or not in that rally but just qualitatively an outdoor activity is much preferable to an indoor activity uh,
0: doctor for a minute uh, going back to the thing which we were mentioning the genomic uh, uh, sequencing, why is it that we we aren't doing the numbers that we are supposed to be doing and why is it that the results or findings made public uh, quickly?
2: Any any, any, uh, technical or scientific reason for this? I don't, I suspect that one issue may be just the capability of doing five times more sequencing that we are doing now, sequencing that we are doing now. The INSACOG has to assemble a whole bunch of different institutions across the country to do the sequencing, ensuring that they report. And finally, they report back to government. So I would guess that it is government's decision to not publicize these results for fear maybe of worrying people, of saying that the, the, the new variants are more infectious, these numbers are rising, etc., But that is probably not good public health policy to keep these secret because they will come out, People know there will be cases, hospitals will be filled, there will be deaths that come from this. So beyond the point, you cannot hide the reasons for this. So it's far better, I think, for government to be transparent in these, to put this information up, just as countries in the West do, of which are the variants, how are they circulating, how are they increasing, what's happening in different states, only if there is transparency. Can people understand why measures have to be taken and why measures are important now, as opposed to say in December or early January? Last
0: year, May twenty-fourth, we went into a national lockdown when the number of cases were far less than even five thousand. But uh, today, when the cases are uh, daily cases are uh, much above one lakh fifty thousand, one lakh seventy thousand cases. We see uh, no restrictions even in closed space uh, settings such as restaurants, theaters, gymnasiums. Are we doing the right thing allowing such businesses to operate in the midst of a dangerously escalating uh,
2: number of cases daily? Dr. Menon? In my opinion, no. This is a mistake. I mean, we know that the virus is transmitted efficiently in closed, badly ventilated surroundings. So anything that constitutes a closed, badly ventilated surrounding is something where you should not allow people to gather. And But let me just point out the other thing. What we have not done is to emphasize, to encourage people to go outdoors. All our messaging has been negative so far. Do not do this, do not do that, do not do something else, do not do this. And this, I think, psychologically is a mistake. Because unless people understand, have a sort of framework of behavior in which they can operate, you are if you only tell them that they cannot do things and they become and especially over a long period of time it becomes hard to take for them to take decisions and then they will finally throw caution to the winds So I think psychologists people who work in public health people who study ventilation in the open air, People, epidemiologists who study how transmission happens in such situations, should intensely sit together and try to discuss this problem and see, can we alter the messaging a little bit? Can we facilitate people going outside at low densities, not at high densities, in the open air, and thereby ensure that good COVID protocols are followed otherwise? But you do need to give people some outlet somewhere, and I think this has not been sufficiently discussed, and it needs to be done. I'd be very interested in knowing what Giri has to say about this.
1: Dr. Babu? Yeah. So, uh, in terms of <clears throat> how we manage the first wave uh, and second wave, the strategy has definitely uh, evolved, matured. Uh, the reason I say that is uh, we have uh, very refined uh, and better treatment protocols now. Uh, we also know uh, whether what proportion of uh, people require oxygenation versus ventilation support in terms of mechanical ventilation we also know uh, which drugs are helpful compared to uh, last year. So, we definitely have the know-how and the mechanisms of preventing deaths. That being known, the second advantage of the second wave is that there's a significant proportion of asymptomatic. So, therefore, they may not require really uh, uh, a different approach in terms of scaling of the uh, health uh, system's response. So, therefore... The strategy for a second wave should be in terms of how do you prevent deaths among those who are having severe illness, which uh, at least uh, looking at the data in Mumbai and even Bangalore, it's around 4.5 to 5% of the, uh, all the cases, uh, which uh, then leads to the next question, uh, is lockdown necessary in the second wave? In the first wave, the reason for lockdown was mostly health system preparedness and also to reduce the speed of uh, transmission. Currently, with at least five states, uh, the reproductive number, effective reproductive number being above two, and in UP, Bihar, it's nearly three. Uh, I don't know uh, how we can uh, decrease it uh, at this stage by imposing a national lockdown. So, therefore, uh, reducing the speed is out of the question. Already, the speed is at, uh, probably uh, at its highest in some states. And in terms of health system response, I don't think in few weeks you'll be able to uh, change drastically in states uh, which have not addressed it uh, last year. Uh, to give you an example, uh, I think Tamil Nadu and Karnataka stirred up oxygenation uh, facilities in the government facilities during the first wave. Now all of them will be put to use in the second wave. So there was this breathing time in between um, to um, ensure that people breathe properly in the second wave. So if you have used it, you don't need a lockdown. I believe that few states might require lockdown when the health system is unable to cope up with the kind of mortality uh, that we might see in few states. Otherwise, national lockdown for the second wave uh, is is definitely uh, not uh, necessary according to this. Yeah,
2: no, I agree with that. I agree completely with that. Now, I
0: was not meaning uh, whether a national or state or national uh, is required. I, I was trying to uh, point out, like when we went into a lockdown last year around the same time, now even uh, closed uh, space settings like theatres and uh, uh, gymnasiums are allowed, restaurants are allowed to function. That is where I see it, uh, a complete contrast. Where that is, it's, it's completely free for uh, all businesses to operate do you think it it makes uh, scientific and public health sense to at least restrict or stop uh, these kind of settings to uh, from operating yes uh, dr gargantan's uh, point that uh, probably restaurants people could be allowed to eat out uh, outside not inside uh, inside a building probably in an open space but uh, in a closed fitness pet- settings uh, should we
1: be be Doing this, I think there is more than science, uh, these decisions are made based on how much power and influence each of these sectors have. <laughs> uh, to give you an example, uh, in Karnataka state, uh, there was a rule to say 50% of attendance is uh, mandatory in, in uh, cinema theatres. Uh, so all the movie actors uh, the next day met the chief minister and there was immediate uh, reversal uh, where 100% was allowed for a week. Uh, taking cue from this, uh, people from other sectors also got the uh, relief. Now, if there is competition of sorts of how much relaxation each sector gets, this is definitely not the way we can uh, win over this uh, uh, virus. So, we are giving more reasons for the virus to flourish. And then we say we don't want lockdown. <laughs> so, so, you can't have both.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And this is really a situation where one should listen to the science. The science is now fairly well established. We know what works. We know what doesn't work. We refer to the way our treatment protocols have changed since last year. But apart from that, we know what is the nature of ventilation, surroundings, interactions, masking, how all of these interact together. We know much more than we did last year. And so certainly, this is something that should really be led by the science and not by the politics. And it's important for the politics to take a back seat and say, what is the scientific advice? How can we ensure that that scientific advice is implemented? Dr. Babu, do you think uh, we should
0: at least go back to uh, working from home wherever possible? Wherever possible, let me insist on that. And virtual classrooms. And similarly, uh, reduce or restrict or I, uh, whatever, the public transport system. I know the, the poor people rely on public transport system for transport. So, uh, it'll, uh, any, any restrictions on that would uh, 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 affect, affect them the most. But is there a solution? Is there a way out to uh, meet, meet
1: this? I think work-from-home option, whenever and wherever it is feasible, I think should be the way ahead uh, for managing not just COVID-19 response, but also in terms of uh, reducing the uh, pollution and several uh, traffic congestion-related issues. That's a good thing to do, uh, wherever possible. But when you look at online classes and using public transport, limiting it, uh, the worst hit are people from poor socioeconomic status. Uh, still now, we don't have the data in terms of zero, uh, prevalence in children, what kind of vaccines are effective in them, what is the severity of the illness in children, how are we going to manage uh, schooling and their uh, learning uh, capabilities with one year, not in school, what kind of mental health issues have they got? There's so much of science that we are ignoring also at the same time. So, uh, if you have to say an evidence-based approach has to be taken, we have to take all of these into consideration, more than our opinions of uh, key important people. Uh, currently, uh, just like the uh, genomic sequencing, uh, the efforts in collecting data with respect to all of this is lacking at least now during summer vacation time we should be able to look at some of these uh, quick rapid servers to understand how it can guide the next year because you can't shut down schools uh, forever right i mean there will be multiple waves of uh, this uh, uh, virus so uh, should we keep close, uh, closing down the schools all the time so uh, but i agree you have to close down all close spaces uh, you should uh, prevent uh, super spreader events from happening. But we have to take a very balanced approach uh, in terms of what is the risk uh, for the, each age groups, and what can we do uh, in terms of each settings.
2: Yes, that's a very good point. I mean, we sort of tend to ignore the psychological consequences of children being out of school for long, especially young children at a point where they need social interaction with their peers. But again, sort of to go back to what I said, I think even with your, your point about public transport, that I think what is key is really understanding the nature of ventilation, it's not clear that a bus with 50% occupancy well ventilated without air conditioning is a significantly worse option than just allowing people to walk around on the road. And so this is where I think some science and engineering of that looks into this question. can, can be used to say that, look, we will not shut down public transport, but we will restrict public transport appropriately. We will increase the number of buses and make sure we don't have AC buses, but ensure ventilation in them and not have the full bus load people close up to each other, but a reduced number. There may be, I think there is space in here to find out what is optimal, both from a social point of view, as well as from an epidemiological point of view.
0: I agree with you, Dr. Menon, but is it uh, f- really feasible to control crowd in a, in a
2: bus? Because... So that this is a sort of you know, policing slash governance issue. I don't see why it is not possible. And I think this is why communication is also important, where you can say that, look, the, the fact that we have opened up public transportation for the use, it comes with certain restrictions and these restrictions are important. If cases will rise, these restrictions will have to be reimposed again. I think if people understand the trade-off that a certain type of behavior leads to a certain type of better outcome versus something else, it may be a little easier to put this point across. I agree that it's not easy. It's not easy at all. But I think people will have to understand the nature of the trade-offs that have to be made. Now that the second wave is
0: truly on, our state really uh, carry out contact tracing and isolate those people who have been found positive in institutional facilities? Dr.
1: This is Giri's uh, question. Babu. Okay, so uh, when I look at uh, the kind of tasks that are assigned to health workers, sometimes I feel there are too many generals and few soldiers. Now, uh, in a place like Bangalore, for a zone, you have at least three to four administrative officers and then you have another tire of supervisory command and there is one medical officer in a PHC and with few uh, workers uh, at uh, the center's disposal. Now they do contact tracing, they do vaccine coverage, they do testing and they are also supposed to do all other health services. Now you will say, okay, 10 is not enough, you do 20 contacts for each case. Then you revise the target for testing and they say you should do more. And uh, uh, thanks to the technology, uh, something goes wrong, then they end up uh, making these entries till midnight uh, for vaccination coverage. Next day morning, again, they're expected to do all this. It is simply not possible. And also in urban areas, there's not enough manpower at all, whether in terms of contact tracing or anything. Uh, The last year was the time when people from other departments were involved, but now nobody is there. It is just few health workers, no additional manpower granted. We have not used the opportunity to step up the preparedness in terms of uh, doing uh, some decent work in health uh, and disease surveillance. Uh, Manpower uh, uh, shortages have not been addressed. Resources have not been addressed, but we want the same people to be uh, tackling the second wave, which is more infectious. I think uh, we need to have a complete uh, a relook at the way the health manpower uh, is managed in this country. Uh, you can't expect uh, you know, global level uh, containment efforts uh, from a, a very uh, weak uh, uh, system with very few people.
0: So, uh, uh, Dr. uh, Babu, how do you think uh, you can overcome this with uh, both vaccination, testing, contact tracing, several other, and uh, 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 institutional care and personal protection? So, so several tasks are now required. Do you think uh, states have that kind of human resources to deploy for each activity?
1: Now, I think uh, it, it would be complete uh, um, waste to defer just to tackle wave by wave or an outbreak by an outbreak. Uh, this thing is not going to take us anywhere. What we need to understand is the rural areas are, uh, are able to do better vaccination coverage, better contact tracing, better coverage with all health services because there is one ASHA for 1000 people. And there's one ANM, axillary nurse, midwife, for every 5,000 people. We simply do not have these uh, human resources in any urban area. Uh, it is there in few uh, wards, but not everywhere. So we need to address this first. Uh, we, we can't l- let this opportunity go and then say, OK, we'll address it later. Uh, there was a move to at least recruit uh, some of the ANMs in Bangalore, but that was rejected later by another department saying that uh, we don't have allocations made for it. Uh, well, this is the time to make allocations for uh, recruiting manpower. Uh, how long can you have revenue workers coming and doing contact tracing and helping with uh, vaccine mobilization? We need special workforce to do contact tracing and testing. We can't have uh, temporary, transient and short-term measures uh, for uh, fighting a pandemic and this is not the last pandemic that we will see. Dr. Benon,
0: would
2: you like to add to it?
1: No, Giri is an expert on this and that's really a great
2: answer. The only minor point that I would like to add is that beyond the point of very large-scale community transmission, contact tracing becomes a bit irrelevant. So the question is whether we should continue to divert resources to that or put them in something else beyond the point. I think we are probably reaching there. The speed of this wave across Maharashtra, across other parts of India is such that we have to really question whether the detailed type of contact tracing of 10 or 20 people that we were thinking about doing is worthwhile doing anymore in those regions where it is growing so rapidly. It may just not satisfy any cost benefit analysis.
0: Dr. Menon, uh, then a related question would be if that be so, if contact tracing would not be feasible in states which are seeing very high cases daily cases do you think the testing should be more proactive in the form of fever
2: clinics or door-to-door testing of people, especially those who are showing symptoms? Yes, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. I agree with that. Testing should be people should be able to access a test center within five minutes or ten minutes of where they stay. They should be free, easily accessible. You should go, you get your test. We should shift to mainly to having RAT tests as a sort of first line of, of, of testing when you just ramp up the number of RETs. RETs are cheaper than PCRs, RETs are also faster than PCRs because the 10-15 minute uh, lateral flow assay test, the PCR result takes about 24 hours to get in. in that 24 hours, there are a whole number of people that you could potentially infect. So I think making testing universally accessible is a very important component to how we should go forward.
1: Dr. Babu? Uh, testing is just a uh, minor part of uh, comprehensive primary health care services. Uh, and uh, as I said before, uh, even in the earlier question, what we need is accessible health services to every person, especially the urban poor and the people who are in remote rural areas. Once we address uh, this uh, core issue, how primary health care services are strengthened for these uh, vulnerable populations, testing is uh, automatically included as part of this package because uh, it's not just uh, infectious diseases, but also non-communicable diseases, also other health promotion services that can be part of um, uh, integrating the comprehensive healthcare services. In this regard, I think the health and wellness centers which have been established can be strengthened uh, more so in the urban areas. And we should use uh, this uh, pandemic Uh, as as the right time frame uh, in terms of uh, strengthening those uh, health uh, and wellness centers. Otherwise, we'll miss uh, one more opportunity and then we'll be uh, listing the same issues uh, when the next wave uh, is is, uh, around the corner.
0: Dr. Babu, what do you think is the reason? Is it fatigue? Or complacency that people aren't wearing masks or uh, adhering to any kind of COVID-appropriate behavior in almost any state. You don't see this happening, at at least not to the levels that you would expect, especially when cases are surging. The way it is surging, Um,
1: I feel this is mostly uh, sort of psychological. That people were wearing it when they were made to wear, and the moment they think they've won against it, Uh, like after the graduation, you throw the hat, Uh, now people are celebrating by throwing the mask. It's unfortunate. Uh, And when you tell people uh, that this is the right thing to do, um, not that uh, they don't know, so then uh, it'll become an accessory uh, either for the neck or for the chin or somewhere uh, around the face, but not where it is supposed to cover. So before uh, people, uh, in terms of communication, I think we have failed, not just in uh, ensuring COVID appropriate behavior, even convincing regarding vaccination. I think there's a major failure. If people are made to understand why they need to wear, then I think probably they'll continue. But currently, I do not uh, see the same kind of communication uh, that was probably there in the uh, initial part of the first wave or which is there for other health programs such as Pulse Polio um, uh, as the mainstay of uh, a program uh, now. So I think that is the main reason uh, uh, why people are not continuing. The second is that they think uh, all sorts of uh, uh, these uh, social media messages, the virus has become weak, uh, we have become victorious, now we have to leave this virus, so therefore there is no way continuing all of this. All sorts of... Uh, uh, this uh, GAN egg is in circulation more than the virus. So, uh, unless we counter that uh, in a uh, more effective manner, uh, these things are going to continue. And no state is uh, uh, exceptional here. Everybody uh, in almost every state uh, is uh, not following properly at some point of time. So, we need to change this uh, uh, altogether.
2: Yeah. Let me just add to that by, by pointing out that in a sense, this has been a long time. It's been a, it's been a whole year. So I can understand the level of fatigue that has crept into some part of the population. And when it sort of looks as though it's going to get even worse, it's going to be prolonged. There is no end in sight. There may be multiple waves. There's a certain amount of, of, of sort of psychological pressure that comes with that. And this feeling that, look, no, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm not going to worry about these things. The other thing is that normally campaigns, these sorts of campaigns work often because children tell parents and elders to behave in a particular way. For example, the, the, the fireworks, the anti-fireworks campaign in Delhi, really succeeded because young children in schools decided that they would do this. And then they went back and told the parents, that we don't want Diwali crackers, loud crackers, and, and lots of them this particular thing. Because that schooling component has been absent, this sort of feedback that could in principle have maintained COVID-appropriate behavior and masking is absent. So I think that's been another thing that has been missing in this case, quite apart from the fatigue and also the issues, the WhatsApp issues that Giri was referring to.
0: If, uh, our states, are you really prepared to handle the potentially uh, huge inflow of patients uh, uh, to hospitals? Do we, do, are they prepared to, are they, have they done sufficient measures to increase the bed capacity? including states like Maharashtra, because uh, Maharashtra is running short of beds already. And the cases are still increasing.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I guess, yeah. So I'll go first. Uh, Gautam can add. So uh, this is uh, uh, the problem uh, almost everywhere. There are inter-regional disparities and intra-regional disparities in health system access and delivery. So if you just look at Maharashtra state the distribution of hospitals and healthcare workers in Mumbai is different compared to the other districts. So therefore, um, while there is a a skewed uh, over uh, presence of uh, people and specialists and the resources in Mumbai, it's not the same in the other cities. That's why uh, they face greater strain on their health system compared to Mumbai. Now, there is a difference between states. Uh, Some states uh, have uh, sort of relatively higher um, uh, health facilities, but mostly in urban areas, which are private. Rural areas, uh, most of the country has only public health facilities. But if we look at uh, Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, uh, this area, we have uh, as such uh, a very poor distribution of health system uh, capacity, both in terms of infrastructure and human resources. The worry is this, that uh, almost nearing three, the reproduction number, you are seeing that uh, these states will have probably the highest number of cases. Even if you assume 5% of these people need hospitalization, do we have enough beds in those states or in the nearby states to shift? And this is what we need to prevent. Uh, we need to uh, be very strategic in uh, helping the states with poor resources. Uh, this is where in, um, a lot of collaboration is needed uh, from the states that have better resources. Some re- allocations are allowed to be done some kind of revised uh, strategy has to be in place for each state uh, as the Mohan. Dr. Menon? No, nothing to add to that. Very great, great answer. Uh,
0: Dr. Menon, uh, why is it that uh, we see increasing number of, uh, starting from teenagers to uh, people under 35, under 40, there's a larger population of this age group getting infected, which we didn't see in the first wave. Is it because they are, they are, um, uh, they are going out uh, uh, more frequently than the elderly people? Or is it something else that the
2: variant uh, is connected with the variant? I think there's been the experience with other waves in other countries that the first wave hits the elderly people, the second wave hits the younger people. So I don't think that that's, that's very different from our situation. But I'm not 100% sure that the numbers are uh, sort of completely in yet. We don't. So everybody is getting infected. Even you know, sort of the numbers are going up so fast that it reflects a broad-based increase. Whether the fraction of let's say fifteen to thirties or fifteen to forties in that is is increasing at a larger rate than the fractions in the other population brackets is something I'm not completely sure about. All we have is anecdotal information. It would be nice if there were some more uh, some more rigorous numbers available on this. But in general, the sort of the fact that the second wave tends to take the, the sort of middle-aged to young population more with it than the first wave is known from other countries' experiences.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's a, uh, a combination of both. Uh, th- there is a greater amount of uh, free movement across children with their parents who go to workplace or children going to the schools, and there is greater uh, risk of transmission um from the data that uh, i have seen in uh, bangalore at least around 13 to uh, 13% is uh, what uh, between less than uh, 10 years and uh, around 10% uh, till 20 years i think this was not there earlier to this extent so it is slowly expanding and we should remember the virus will find people who are uninfected uh, so whether the new strain or the old strain uh, It will find who is susceptible. So therefore, if somebody is not infected already, they are at higher risk of getting the transmission.
0: Dr. Menon, India crossed the the different milestones in terms of vaccinations and uh, recently crossed the 100 million a a couple of days back. But then we have vaccinated just about 6.5% of the population, whereas uh, Israel has crossed uh, 60%. And UK is close to 50%. So what could be done to increase the vaccine uptake? Is there vaccine hesitancy that we really see?
2: Is that the reason or is it something else? So Giri may be able to answer this better. But I think the initial period of vaccine hesitancy has now decreased. I think there are now people, more takers of vaccines than vaccines are available. And as you point out, there are genuine vaccine shortages. In multiple states which are seeing a huge uptick in cases. Question of vaccine seems to be fairly complicated because even supply, there are many questions around that. Will, will SII be able to provide the number of vaccines that it had promised earlier? How will these be divided between Indian and, and non-Indian recipients?
1: No, uh, There can be many other problems, but vaccine hesitancy is least of the problem India has, whether it is COVID-19 vaccine or any other vaccine. It's a convenient term uh, we have coined for a a complicated list of problems, which include lack of micro planning, lack of mobilization, lack of better communication, a uh, lack of a vaccination policy for uh, how to go about in different uh, phases. And most importantly, in every vaccination campaign, we have had a separate plan for uh, social mobilization of the minorities. Uh, We don't have that yet. So, uh, it's it's incomplete uh, preparation uh, and uh, the speed at which it is being expanded without uh, these uh, important aspects being covered uh, now the, i know more people who are waiting to get vaccinated than who say that we have doubts about vaccine and uh, a simple thing like vaccine prevents the death uh, this is not communicated uh, well um, uh, where people thinking that after vaccine how can i get uh, covid 19 uh, you know tested positive So, uh, these are very simple things which are done in every vaccination program in India. Why are we not using our strengths? Um, What has happened that uh, we should start everything new in terms of learning for uh, scaling up this vaccination? Uh, How do you uh, cater, supply and demand uh, in a staggered manner? We have done this for other vaccination campaigns. So, I don't think uh, vaccine hesitancy is an issue at all in India. Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, contrary to claims made by the private sector that uh, if allowed, they would exponentially increase the number of vaccines uh, given out each day. But when you see today, they hardly make up the in the private facilities, private hospitals, they hardly uh, make up for 10% of the sessions held across the country. Why is, What is the reason for this and how can this be scaled up such that that the number of vaccines delivered each day goes up uh, sharply, if not exponentially?
1: Should I go first? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for uh, nearly four or five decades now, uh, it is the public health sector which is the main player in vaccination programs. So, if we are expecting the private uh, uh, health system will... Outsmart the public health system in coverage of vaccine just for COVID-19. Uh, that's a wrong assumption uh, to begin with. Uh, the private health system has a definite definitive, and a clearly uh, you know, identified uh, population who would want to receive vaccines from. Uh, but now even that is changing, both in terms of uh, COVID-19 care and vaccination, there are government health facilities which are saying for the first time we are seeing rich people coming to government hospitals. So uh, even now, I can uh, on record say that the uh, kind of cold chain system in the government system is far superior uh, even for something as simple as oral polio vaccine, which has the vaccine vial monitor to show the cold chain status. That will be in perfect healthy condition in all the public health facilities or most of it. But if you go randomly to uh, most private health facilities, this VVM is not monitored well. So it's not their strength. And to expect that uh, suddenly it will be their strength uh, will be a difficult uh, thing to uh, take care of. But if there are more vaccines and people want to pay for uh, these vaccines, then the public health system cannot cater to it. That's where the strength of private health system is. So I think we need to recognize strengths of each system and see who is the target population for those systems, and uh, work out mechanisms around it. Yeah, that's,
2: uh, yeah, no, that's a, a great answer. I just wanted to add to the point that uh, Giri made about the fact that the quality of the public health centers that have been arranged for the COVID-19 vaccination are actually extremely good. And this has been my experience with both my own experience as well as experiences of my friends in, in, in Tamil Nadu in general. And that I think has really been a shift away from what it was in the past where you would tend to not go to government facilities because you felt you were treated better and you had you know, it was sort of cleaner and overall a better experience in a private health facility. Somehow that doesn't seem to be the case. I think government facilities are leading the, the charge here in providing high quality in this particular area at the moment. And I think that's a great positive for the long term. Giri, what would you say to that? Is that your opinion too?
1: No, absolutely. I think um, um, even in terms of uh, the quality uh, parameters, uh, uh, recently NABH accreditation of uh, health system uh, is a welcome move. I think quality has to improve uh, in the public health system and COVID-19 has been one such uh, uh, an opportunity where uh, public health response has been uh, better.
0: Unlike uh, the U.S., which pumped in billions of dollars into each pharmaceutical company well before even the trial could begin under the Operation Warp speed, India did not do it. And neither has India gone in for, with a uh, firm commitment that it would take a certain number of doses from so either from Serum institute or from Bharat Biotech, if and when the vaccines become available and approved by the regulator. So the financial commitment as such has been missing. Now that uh, these two uh, companies uh, have to scale up and the current production is not able to meet the demand, do you think uh, it's time that the government uh, puts in money or helps them financially to scale up production so that we need it both uh, for domestic demand as well as for export uh, to other countries to coax facility so that at least the healthcare care workers in many of the developing countries african countries and other countries uh, uh, get the
2: vaccines Dr. I, Menon, uh, I would you, think so absolutely i think this is a good time for government support i think the vaccine industry in india with si leading it is a strong industry and this is a point where we where we do, where, where every country in the world needs vaccines. This is a role that we have. We need vaccines in our own country in large numbers. So this is something where government intervention, government support can make a huge difference in the long term, but also going to, to support Indian industry.
1: If I may add, uh, why should the government limit its support only to these two companies? Uh, exactly. I, exactly. I, I would rather uh, want the government of India to invite Almost every manufacturer uh, who has uh, now uh, phase three uh, results and approved by the other regulatory authorities, invite them to start manufacturing in India and make this as, uh, again, uh, make in India campaign where you uh, manufacture here and export to the entire world. We have the capabilities, we have the know-how, we have the best scientists here. So uh, why not use this as an opportunity? Why only limit only to these two companies?
2: Yes. Absolutely.
0: Can I have a related question to, to Dr. Babu? We had the public health, uh, our public sector uh, facilities manufacturing vaccines, which, uh, which were uh, shut down for various reasons. Do you think this pandemic and this shortage of vaccines is a wake-up call that uh, considering that we have a immunization program for children, various, uh, several vaccines, and the COVID-19 vaccine probably would be required uh, a year, every year or uh, once in two years, a booster dose or something else. Is it time for the government to uh, either um, start use the existing facilities or to build new uh, facilities, public, uh, uh, public sector facilities for vaccine the manufacturing? No, I think
1: it's uh, a combination of... Uh... Having uh, uh, you know uh, independent public health facilities, and also more importantly, build partnerships with the private industry. Uh, for all we know, uh, uh, the companies in India have done extremely well in providing most affordable vaccines or drugs uh, of the highest quality uh, whenever it mattered, especially in public health emergencies. So I don't think uh, uh, only public health sector uh, uh, will cater to this need. We need more. What we really need is the trust and the collaboration between public and private entities and doing this partnership for long-term. I mean, these are not like, you know, just for sup- supply of one, uh, do- one set of uh, you know, doses for one wave, and then maybe I'll shift to another company. Uh, this kind of short-term uh, commitments will not help. We need to have a, again, policy for how do we uh, invite others to come manufacture in India, and then, how do we scale it up? And how do we take care of global health as a leader? I think this is one opportunity where definitely India is known, uh, at least now, to uh, as a power with vaccines. Uh, you know, as both as manufacturer and supplier to most poor countries. Sometimes even as uh, you know uh, a g- grant, and uh, you know we even without any uh, money being uh, paid for these vaccines, which is a really good thing. But we need to change gears. Uh, we need to be a world leader in this. If you don't use this opportunity, uh, then uh, uh, it's a loss.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. This is a great opportunity for India's soft power to manifest itself. And that I think is very important and we should not neglect this particular opportunity.
0: From a situation of strength where India was considered to be uh, uh, capable of producing vaccines by millions and be able to not just cater to the local demand, but even export to other countries. We are right now struggling for, uh, for, to gain access to vaccines uh, where there is vaccine shortage in several states, including Maharashtra. How did we reach this state? What happened? And how, how could this be corrected and prevented? Dr. Gautam?
2: Maybe Giri should answer that.
1: Okay. I think this is artificial supply constraint. I don't think uh, this is a real problem for India. Now, uh, when we make uh, expansion of the age groups and we would want more and more people to uh, be covered, we should have uh, you know uh, appropriate number of uh, doses uh, in stock. If we don't have, there is going to be uh, some uh, supply chain uh, problems. Uh, this is uh, uh, a very simplistic view of how supply and demand has to be met. Uh, for this reason, uh, as we have uh, explained earlier, we need more vaccines, um, more manufacturers to come to India and then use the facilities here to manufacture their vaccines. And that's how you cover not only just uh, the eligible group in India, but also your position as a leader. So, uh, and these positions of uh, getting ahead being a leader, they're all dynamic. And uh, what we said was India did so well last year. Uh, now uh, the curve is in a different uh, place now and we have to do a lot of explanation. But very soon somebody else will have to do the explanation. I think we have to leave uh, with these uh, dynamic uh, processes.
0: Regulator has approved uh, the uh, V vaccine and Dr. Reddy's lab is expected to import nearly 100 million doses uh, Dr. Babu, do you think uh, the current vaccine shortage will be eased uh, quickly now that uh, uh, Dr. Eddie's lab can import these vaccines?
1: The shortfall the in terms of supply constraints that India is facing will be reduced to some extent. Uh, I, I'm not confident whether we completely take care of uh, the demand uh, in terms of uh, covering the eligible population above 45 years in the uh, manner in which we would want to uh, cover. So, I would imagine at least 10 million doses is necessary per day to uh, complete uh, the 30% of the population uh, in the next two months because that's uh, critical in terms of reducing mortality uh, in the next wave, not the current wave. After that, if you were to expand uh, to other age groups, we will definitely require a greater supplies. But, yes is a welcome step uh, a step forward I think the same rationale should be applied for the other vaccines as well
0: Dr Menon yes. would
2: you like to add I, to it you know I agree with that I think this is something that's welcome it's something that has been asked for for a while it's also important as I said earlier to have a broad base of multiple vaccines because we don't know there's answers to questions like which vaccine might be better against which variant that might either be present now or might be present later. And this may alter our policy in terms of where to send which vaccine at what time. But in general, it will improve the availability of vaccines overall and will strengthen our ability to at least meet the target of 300 million to be vaccinated by August, which is an important target. And for that, numbers of vaccines will have to be, as Giri as says, about 10 million per day, number of vaccinations.
0: India has also decided to fast-track approval of vaccines developed and greenlighted in US, Europe, UK, and Japan. But then, will India get access to Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in the near future, given that many other countries have already booked and are still waiting for the supplies? Dr. Menon would you like to take it?
2: Um, this, The sort of arrangements that vaccine manufacturers have with different countries are fairly complex. It's not clear how much give they have in terms of their current abilities to sell vaccines, for example, to India. But I think this the impact of this is probably larger. It enables them to be able to manufacture within India to have a bunch of different arrangements with other Indian manufacturers. So you can do import of bulk, import of finished foreign vaccines, fill and finish in the country. I don't know whether that might make a difference in terms of availability.
0: Doctor Babu, would you like to add to it?
1: I think um, the scale at which uh, the demand uh, within the country uh, uh, exists in India uh, will definitely be a a very attractive market for most vaccines. So uh, the vaccine manufacturers have agreements based on their current manufacturing capability. But if Indian manufacturers uh, show interest in partnering with uh, these firms who are uh, having approvals elsewhere, the entire thing will change in terms of uh, India becoming uh, now the ma- vaccine manufacturer for the entire world, not just the country. So I think uh, it's, a, it's a great move that other vaccines are welcome here and uh, there should be more collaborations. I would go one step ahead and then uh, say uh, there should be some, something similar to single window clearance where uh, the vaccine manufacturers get access to partner with the uh, manufacturing firms in India and also government acts as a facilitator of these uh, uh, arrangements.
0: But considering the high cost of the mRNA vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna, do you think India can uh, actually afford to pay over $30 per dose and make it uh, available for free? Or will this lead to a situation where the government procures it and makes it available at high cost, maybe probably the same price uh, that it uh, charges other countries at private health facilities? Dr. Babu, would you like to take it?
1: Yeah, I think um, uh, there are too many assumptions right now in terms of what the pricing will be, what will be the arrangement and all that. But I'm assured of one thing, whichever drug it is, India has been able to regulate the price, uh, mostly because of economy of scale. Once you manufacture for a larger number of people, then the cost will definitely go down. Uh, Plus, there are also uh, other countries who would require uh, such uh, vaccines from India. So that will allow India to have differential pricing, uh, one for uh, export and one for use within. So uh, I feel there is a great scope, a great potential for uh, uh, taking... Uh, the cost uh, as a factor uh, buffered by the demand uh, uh, that exists all over the world.
2: Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't, um, I think we don't know enough about how these deals and how the negotiations will be structured and what the government will want to do. And I think that the size of the Indian market for vaccines is large enough. That will certainly be a significant point in in any negotiation. And... Already, there is differential pricing of various drugs that are available at much more expensive terms in the U.S. versus outside the U.S. by the same manufacturers. So it's not unlikely that we would have an arrangement where the cost of these are not the same cost that would hold in the U.S., but they are available for cheaper within India. I hope the government negotiates very strongly on these points. It would not be a good system to have... Very expensive vaccines available only to the very rich or people who can afford it. Whereas the bulk of India are not having access to that. So I hope some equity will be worked out in the negotiations.
0: But uh, unlike uh, uh, Serum Institute and Bharat Biotech, which are completely or uh, totally a vaccine manufacturer, uh, manufacturing company, the other companies are in. Are they, therefore, will, do you really expect, even if the technology or even if they start producing, would they be able to produce it in scale, at scale? Dr. Menon, would you take? Would you like to answer that?
2: Well, given the approval, can they find someone to tie up with, an, an Indian company to tie up with, that enables them to manufacture at scale in India, both for internal use and export? I don't know. This is not something that I'm particularly deeply knowledgeable about. So, I would imagine that that would be one that, given this current approval for expanding the number of vaccines that are available inside India, there is more that can be worked on that allows more collaboration between Indian manufacturers and foreign companies.
1: Babu? I think there is capacity within India. Uh, if you look at uh, the way Sputnik is uh, sort of uh, entering into agreement with five companies for manufacturing within the country, uh, I think. The uh, uh, there, there is greater scope even in the existing vaccine manufacturers to have more vaccines uh, to be manufactured in their facilities. Uh, tomorrow, maybe the Serum Institute and Bharat Biotech may also show interest in collaborating with these companies to manufacture vaccines. So uh, this is a welcome step. This is first step. Uh, I would rather not jump uh, many steps ahead. And uh, since there is... Uh, Uh, production involved, there is cost involved, Uh, the companies are proactive in working out some arrangements since the government has taken the first step in uh, welcoming. Do
0: you think uh, in the short term, we would have access uh, only to Johnson and Johnson's vaccine because uh, uh, Dr. Reddy's lab is already tied up, and it would be soon importing 100 million doses and eventually uh, uh, filling it or manufacturing it here in India. But uh, Pfizer and Moderna will be probably only in the long term, or probably even after the pandemic ends. Is uh, is this a, is this a scenario that you think will happen, Dr. Babu?
1: I'll start with your last assumption, Dr. Prasad. Uh, pandemic will end, is a very optimistic um, assumption. So, um, uh, I'm, at least I'm convinced that we are in for a long haul. There will be multiple waves uh, all over the world. So, uh, but uh, whether it's short or long term depends on what kind of agreements we'll have. Uh, if there is um, an initial period where import of vaccine is allowed, and later on, in the there are some mechanisms to uh, manufacture in, within India. I think then there are two ways of <coughs> addressing the need here. Um, uh, even to a section of people w- who cannot take other vaccines, the availability of mRNA uh, for that group uh, is, is a really first great step. The next step would be to then understand the mechanics between to different kinds of vaccines and what are the effectiveness uh, associated with one dose of uh, A versus uh, the second dose with B, uh, things like that. And with the variants, which vaccines might be better for uh, boosted doses. So uh, as you're learning about uh, the virus and the transmission, uh, having more vaccines uh, in the basket is always a a good good thing to uh, have in the country.
0: Dr. Menon, would you like to add to it?
2: Um, I think it's a little too early to say. We don't know whether Pfizer may reapply for emergency use authorization, which it had earlier withdrawn. Earlier, maybe we could see Moderna entering the market. We don't know yet. Let's see how things evolve in the next few weeks and what level of interest there is in foreign manufacturers, and foreign vaccine producers entering the country. So to end it, you would say that there is uh,
0: Dr. Babu, uh, you're insisting that uh, there is no vaccine hesitancy as such. It has uh, problems uh, surrounding it: uh, be it availability, be it mobilisation, be it micro planning, uh, be it the age bracket, etc. That that's more responsible for uh, the low uptake. But do you think uh, uh, India would be able to meet these and reach a situation where we, va- we vaccinate not uh, 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 a couple of lakhs but about uh, uh, at least a million uh, people each day?
1: We have the potential we have done in all the vaccination programs. So there's no new initiative uh, that is required now. Uh, as I said before, there is hesitancy to list out the real problems Therefore, we are calling it as vaccine hesitancy. Uh, We need to understand what the real issues are. Uh, Most people cannot register on their own uh, in an app. Uh, And therefore, we need to make sure these are very simple uh, for being uh, scalable. And then we also should involve more and more health workers to mobilize uh, people. And we should build systems around uh, expanding the coverage to outreach services.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think we should reduce the barriers to people getting, being able to be vaccinated. And this is, I think, much more in, as, as, you know, the use of an app, somebody to enter it, uh, various types of ID that you need to carry in order to, to prove your, uh, your eligibility for the vaccine. We should try and see how we just make it easier for people to get vaccinated. And as much as we can, we should put our efforts into that. And so I don't think, as Giri said, that vaccine hesitancy is a problem. Certainly not now. There are many more takers for vaccines than there are vaccines available. One last
0: question. A country that uh, the number of activities uh, are only increasing, where more and more health workers are required, be it uh, for contact tracing or for testing or for other uh, uh, reasons, the government had uh, banned uh, any new registration of healthcare workers and most of these states which uh, taken people for contact tracing or something else take them on a contact basis so uh, would uh, are we denying these people a vaccine just because the new registrations aren't allowed is this is this
2: ethically correct uh, dr Minan, uh, would you like to take that no, it certainly is not it's not correct. These are people who are frontline workers who are exposed much more to COVID patients than the average person. And certainly they should be protected. There is no reason to deny them a vaccination. And we should certainly change that. Dr. Babu, would you like to add to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, th- that's a perfect answer. But uh, I think uh, government might have its own reasons. Uh, maybe they'll release it later. Definitely it is not something that we would... Uh, uh, call uh, ethical in any way uh, I think they might release it at a later date but uh, this is a question well answered by the government
0: Okay, thanks a lot Thank you uh, uh, Dr. Gautam Menon and Dr. Giridhar Babu Thanks a lot
2: Thank you Dr. Prasad Thank you.